This week we are in Exodus chapter 32 as we continue our walk alongside the Israelites out of Egypt and towards the promised land. Exodus 32 verse 1. When the people saw that Moses was so long in coming down from the mountain, they gathered around Aaron and said, Come, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what's happened to him. Aaron answered them, Take off the gold earrings that your wives, your sons and your daughters are wearing and bring them to me. So all the people took off their earrings and brought them to Aaron. He took what they handed him and made it into an idol cast in the shape of a calf, fashioning it with a tool. Then they said, These are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar in front of the calf and announced, Tomorrow there will be a festival to the Lord. So the next day the people rose early, sacrificed burnt offerings and presented fellowship offerings. Afterwards they sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in revelry. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go down, because your people whom you brought up out of Egypt have become corrupt. They have been quick to turn away from what I commanded them and have made themselves an idol cast in the shape of a calf. They have bowed down to it and sacrificed to it and have said, These are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. One of the many reasons that I love Scripture is passages like this. I mean, why include this event in the story? If you're simply trying to create a glorious, positive narrative about the formation of the nation of Israel, why include disasters like this? Last time, we focused on the presence of God in the midst of his people. These people have been led by God from Egypt through the Red Sea to Sinai. They have known his presence. We will discover that he promises him their presence. And yet here they are failing big time. Why not just remove this chapter, this event Of course, we cannot remove it. We cannot remove this narrative from the whole because it happened and because it matters. Why does it matter? Why did it matter to them? Why does it matter to us? Well, according to St. Paul, it matters to us because it contains within it lessons for us to learn. This is what Paul says to the church in Corinth in 1 Corinthians 10 verses 1 to 7. I do not want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers and sisters, that our ancestors were all under the cloud and that they all passed through the sea. They were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. They all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them, and that rock was Christ. Nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them. Their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. Now these things, Paul is referring back to what we've just read. Now these things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, 
the people sat down to eat and drink and got to indulge in revelry. So Paul, writing thousands of years later, is quoting to the Corinthians, to the new church, to us. He is quoting these verses that we read in Exodus. It is easy for us to judge others, isn't it? That's why the Bible so often says, do not judge, because it seems to come naturally to us. We, we naturally judge those who are different from us or separated from us, especially those who are separated, separated from us by history. Paul is reminding the Corinthians that the failings of the past are so easily the temptations and potential failings of the present. In chapter 32 of Exodus, of which we've just read a handful of verses, there are numbers of themes that we could have unpacked. The need for good leadership, comparing Aaron and Moses. God's hatred of sin and zeal for holiness. The power of community and discipling others. Moses' model of intercessory prayer. We'll pick up one of those themes in this week's devotion. For the rest of our time, we are going to focus on what Paul focuses on, the ever-present threat of idolatry. Let me remind you of what Paul says in verse 7 of chapter 10 of 1 Corinthians. Do not be idolaters, as some of them were, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in revelry. We're going to ask a number of questions. Firstly, what is idolatry? As we've walked through the book of Exodus together, you'd have noticed actually the word sin hardly ever occurs. And yet from in, the, in this chapter and the following chapters, it occurs time and time and time again. In chapter 32, in these few verses, we discover that the people managed to break at least three, if not six, of the Ten Commandments. Have no other gods. Do not make an image. Do not take the name of the Lord in vain. They break all of those in this creation of a golden calf and the festival that follows. The word revelry in the Hebrew almost certainly points to sexual indulgence, which means they probably also broke the commandment, do not commit adultery. Later on in the passage, Aaron breaks number nine, thou shalt not bear false witness, when he says to his brother, oh yes, they threw the gold into the fire and a calf came out, which is the most obvious and foolish of lies. The people's desire for a God like the Egyptians pushes them towards breaking commandment number 10. Do not covet. We see in passages like this how easily sin begets sin. In the same way that keeping a commandment makes it easier to keep the others, so breaking a commandment seems to make it easier to break the others. For the Israelites, their desire for an idol exposes their hearts and allows sin to run riot. They create an idol. And what is idolatry? It is to take that which has been created and to make it into something that you think is the creator. Idolatry is, at its essence, to take something created by God and make it into your 
God. How does it happen? How do they so easily slip into idolatry? How do we so easily slip into idolatry? Well, if we look at our verses, we actually have a description of how it happens. Firstly, idolatry starts when we take something good, a blessing from God, and make of it something that draws our eyes or distracts us from God. What do they take? The earrings. What does that point to? Well, probably one of two things, maybe even both. Firstly, when you owned a slave, you would often put an earring in them to denote that they belonged to you. So it's possible that the Israelites were wearing earrings that still pointed back to their slavery and therefore point to their rescue. These earrings had stopped being a sign of slavery and were now a sign of rescue. They were the blessing of God. It's also very possible they were wearing earrings that they had been given. Remember, when they left Egypt, they had been blessed the Egyptians had showered them with silver and gold and belongings. It was almost like back pay for their years of slavery. So these earrings were a blessing from God. They pointed to their rescue and they pointed to God's provision. But they have taken what's been a blessing and they've created something that has become a distraction. And distraction, anything that pulls our eyes away from God, is the beginning of idolatry. If we wanted to be very gracious to Aaron and his leadership, we might argue that he was trying to create a memorial for the Lord. However, this reminder of God's blessing quickly became treated as a God. Notice that all that Yahweh had done for them, they now attributed to the created image. They've moved from being distracted from God to being devoted to something else. All that God had done, they're now looking at the idol and saying, oh, the idol, these are our gods who rescued us. Distraction needs to devotion. We may have given Aaron the benefit of the doubt, but now he gives into the next stage of idolatry. It says this, when Aaron saw that they'd begun to attribute to this calf that they were God, he built an altar in front of the calf and announced tomorrow there'll be a festival for the Lord. They've gone from distraction to devotion to dedication and worship. Do you see how it's happened? The blessing of God becomes a distraction. They create something which they now, they now devote themselves to it and then they dedicate themselves to it. They begin to worship. The idol is now shaping their time and impacting their wallets. They get up early. They sacrifice their time. They take animals from their flock, a sign of their wealth, and they make sacrifices of them. They join with others as a community offering. They become idolaters. Now, of course, we would never get caught out on this journey. I would never allow the created things, the blessing of God in my life, to become an idol. Well, of course, I can so easily find myself in that place. I can so easily find myself on that 
downward slope. It might not be a golden calf. In fact, I can safely say it's never been a golden calf. What about my work? What about my ministry? What about my family? What about money? What about sex? What about leadership? These things have been gifts of God to me, but they can so easily become a distraction. They can so easily become my primary devotion. They can so easily become the thing I dedicate my life to at the expense of God. Not even alongside God, but instead of God. When I worship something other than God or someone other than God, that thing or that person will begin to dominate my life. They'll be the place I run to. In fact, at its worst, when God challenges me on those things, God has gone from being my Lord, my Saviour, my friend, to my enemy. I start defending that thing against God. Do you see why Moses, under the zeal of God, is so firm in destroying the idol? So idolatry is getting distracted and then dedicated and then devoted to something other than God. But why do we do that? Why did these people do it? They'd seen so much. Why did they get caught out in this way? When we focus on the text and analyse in the context of worship, it can be difficult to see why any of us would fall into this trap. And yet we do all the time. Why is that? Well, our text gives us some clues. Firstly, the challenge of culture. Why did Aaron ask for gold? And why does he make the image of a cow? Why did the people speak so quickly of God's plural rather than God? Well, it's because they're still carrying the culture of Egypt. A culture that was polytheistic. They had many gods. A culture that would form images in the shape of animals, especially bulls. A culture that loved gold and put value in gold, so they put gold on their statues. You see, the people had been rescued from Egypt physically, but they were not yet free of Egypt culturally. Culture can push us towards idolatry. Why do things like money, sex and power become an idol in our lives so easily? Because they're idols in our culture. They're the things we worship in our culture. It is hard, friends, to be in the world and not of the world. Why do we become idolaters? Because of our culture. Why else? Well, because of impatience. I love this, right in verse 1, it says, When the people saw that Moses was so long in coming down from the mountain. Now, yes, Moses was up there for a while, but not so long. They spent 400 years in slavery. Moses was up there for a maximum of 40 days and 40 nights. They'd also known him go up and come down and go up and come down. They had records to show that. And yet impatience lies at the heart of so much sin, especially idolatry. 
Adam and Eve were not patient enough to let God lift the boundary around the tree of knowledge. Abraham and Sarah couldn't wait for Isaac. Jacob could not wait for his inheritance that had been promised. Saul could not wait for Samuel to sacrifice. The people could not wait for David. David could not wait for Bathsheba. We cannot wait for stuff, so we incur debt. We cannot wait for the safety of the marriage covenant, so we push sexual boundaries. We cannot wait for God to do our bidding, so we create an idol. God's timing is rarely in line with our timing. Culture pushes us towards idolatry. Impatience pushes us towards idolatry. Third thing we see is control. Come, they say, make us gods who will go before us. He took what they handed to him and made it into an idol cast in the shape of a calf, fashioning it with a tool. Notice that, make us a god. Fashion it with a tool. Make it the shape we want it to be. Friends, we like being in control. And so the temptation is to make God in our image or to rely on a God that meets our felt needs. The people struggled with a God they could not see. The people struggled with a God who they could not control. But if we can create something that we have control over, that moves when we want it to move, that does what we want it to do, well, we often take that option. The people fashioned a God in an image they could define. And finally on this passage, self-justification. Afterwards, they sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in revelry. The people knew that God had given them boundaries. They wanted a God that let them do what they wanted. They wanted a God they could control. They wanted a God like the other gods. They wanted a God they didn't have to wait for. They wanted a God they could see who would let them live the lives they wanted to live. This is why they got caught out. This is why we get caught out. So is there any good news in this passage? Well, yes. How do we inoculate ourselves against idolatry? If idolatry is so easily to slip into, how do we help one another? Are we condemned to fail? Well, by no means. Remember, idolatry is prohibited by God, not because God is insecure, but because idolatry does us damage. It absorbs our time, our energy, our money. We may think we're creating things in our image, but in the end, they start to shape us. They start to demand things of us. They are empty vessels. Given that idolatry costs me time and energy, all I need to do is refocus that in the right way. So what do I do in order to challenge my culture? Well, this, keep good company says in uh, Exodus uh, 24, Then Moses set out with Joshua his aide, 
Moses went up the mountain of God. He said to the elders, wait here for us until we come back to you. Aaron and her are with you and anyone involved in the dispute can go to them. We so easily forget that Moses wasn't up the mountain on his own. Joshua was with him. And we so easily forget that Aaron wasn't left on his own. He was given her and 70 elders around him to support him. As well as fix his eyes on God, Moses had a friend alongside him. And if only Aaron had done the same. Aaron was in good company, but he tries to go it alone. We protect ourselves, friends, by remembering we're part of a community, by keeping good company, by holding one another accountable and encouraging one another for all we're worth. Culture is challenged by great Christian fellowship. What about impatience? Well, the foundation of impatience is grumbling. We've called this sermon Grumbling and Golden Calves for a reason. Because before this moment, the seeds of idolatry have been been sown through grumbling, dissatisfaction, vocalised one to another. Grumbling creates a wonderful seedbed for impatience with God and with others. But do you know how to challenge grumbling? Thankfulness. Gratitude. When I think of people I know who are least likely to be drawn into idolatry, something I notice about them is they are full of gratitude. They thank God and others regularly. If we want to inoculate ourselves against idolatry, be people of praise and thanks. Thanking God day after day. It changes the culture of our hearts and makes grumbling so much harder. And finally, what do we do about control and self-justification? Worship. It is hard to trust God. It is hard to relate to a God who is invisible. But idolatry is not the answer. Worship is the answer. Those of you who've been following through Exodus by the reading plan will know that the chapters leading up to chapter 32 have been all about the tabernacle. God revealing to Moses the place of worship, the tent of meeting. God knows us. God knows that we need tangible ways to connect with him. And in this part of the plan, the way he did that was to create a tent of meeting, a tabernacle, stages for people to walk through that enabled them to worship and connect and have relationship. God's original plan, remember, was to walk with man in the cool of the evening. That will be totally restored in glory. It was restored in the incarnation when Jesus walked amongst us. At this point in Israel's history, it's meant to be restored through God's presence in the tabernacle. Worship is what gets us away from control. Knowing the word of God, declaring praise, worshipping together. Worship is the antidote to idolatry. Worshipping full of the Holy Spirit. Worshipping from a foundation of the word of God. So do we have to slip into idolatry? By no means. Keep good company. Develop an attitude of gratitude. Be a worshipper 
in word and spirit. But what about when we do get it wrong? Because we will. We are being transformed from one degree of glory into another. We are pressing on to take hold of that for which Christ has taken hold of us. Even keeping great company and, and being thankful and committing ourselves to worship in word and spirit, it is so easy to get distracted and devoted and dedicated to something other than God. So what then? Well, again, this chapter helps us. In verses 30 to 33, it says this, The next day Moses said to the people, You've committed a great sin, but now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. So Moses went to the Lord and said, Oh, what a great sin these people have committed. They've made themselves gods of gold, but now please forgive their sin. But if not, then blot me out of the book you have written. Moses, who seems to have learned a lot about leadership by this point, doesn't condemn the people. He tries to stand in the gap for the people, to atone for the people. Moses says to God, no, don't judge them, judge me. Now God goes on to say, whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out my book. Now go, lead the people to the place I spoke of. My angel will go before you. However, when the time comes for me to punish, I will punish them for their sin. What have we said of this book of Exodus, of this journey? Well, we've said there are within it patterns of redemption. Moses offers to stand in the gap. But God doesn't receive Moses' sacrifice because God knows that's not enough. Moses has his own sin to deal with. So God says to Moses this, when the time comes. What is God speaking of? Well, possibly the judgment that will come through plague or other things in the wilderness. But God is actually looking to another time, another one like Moses, who will stand in the gap. What do we do when we fail? We rely on the grace of God. We rely on the one who is better than Moses, on Jesus, who when the time had fully come, stood in the gap, was blotted out, received judgment for all the sin, that we might not be trapped in idolatry, but we might be rescued into glorious relationship with our Heavenly Father. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that your word is honest and speaks to us of real life. And we thank you that your word reveals your forgiveness and grace in Jesus. Help us to fix our eyes afresh on him today. Amen.